friend in, in uh, way back when, grew up in Texas, I know him. Uh, he was a, you know, he was a good guy. Uh, he was a good kid. Never really did anything wrong. Has um, grown up, um, for the most part, was well-behaved, did everything right. Uh, his mom always had him in church. Um, he used to uh, go every weekend, he would go to church with his mom. And so he grew up knowing the stories, right? Knowing the do's and don'ts and the prayers and the songs. He knew all those things. And so, uh, you know, I think that's what he thought God was like or a relationship was like. The problem was as he got older and began to recognize some of the dysfunction that, that his family was living in, that wasn't enough. The stories and the prayers you learn aren't, aren't enough to kind of hold you down and to, to keep you in relationship. Uh, he had a mom who was a great lady. She was a sweet lady, always went to church, but uh, just emotionally uh, kind of unstable. His dad was an alcoholic. Um, he was very physically abusive, uh, but more so he was uh, emotionally and uh, verbally abusive uh, to the point where this guy was like, you know, never really felt worth anything, and so um, he was the funny one. He was the one that tried to draw attention away from who he really thought he was, who'd been told he was, and so he grew further and further away from God because God wasn't the same God that he had learned about when he was younger. Does that make sense? It wasn't the God that he knew. Uh, I mean, if God was like this, then why is life like this? Well, his family continued to break down. He uh, found himself in high school, going to three different high schools in four years. Uh, it was kind of a crazy period of time. Uh, but for two years, he spent down in South Texas and uh, started dating a girl down there who was a couple of years older than him. And uh, at this point, there was really n no going to church. There was... Uh, no real relation with him. In fact, in his life, I think he'll tell you that um, uh, he was just angry at God, wanted nothing to do with God at all. And so this guy became physically involved with the girl and, and um, all the time and, and doing all kinds of things. Eventually, he got involved in drugs. Uh, mostly at that point in his life in high school, it was just smoking pot and uh, thinking that was a great thing to do. All kinds of stories from that time of his life that he could tell you, but um, eventually when he was a senior in high school, he got that girl pregnant, and uh, you know, at that point in his life, there was no real responsibility, he was kind of living life for himself, and the girl came and told him, but then she also told him that um, her mom had taken her and she had gotten an abortion, and you know, as hard as that was on her, it really wasn't that hard on him at that time, because he really didn't care. He really didn't have any feelings at all. Uh, it was just kind of sad. And that relationship, obviously, based upon uh, nothing more than the physical, was gone pretty soon after that. He went to college in South Texas. Uh, uh, didn't have any money <laughs> to go to college because his dad was basically had, didn't have much of a relationship with his father at that time. and His mom was an emotional wreck and just living off whatever she had gotten in the divorce. And so... In order to pay for college, he used to drive down to the border in Texas, uh, to Harlingen, Texas, uh, Brownsville, and he'd buy 
quarter pound to half pounds of marijuana. He'd drive up to Austin, Texas, and San Marcos, Texas, and he'd, he'd sell it there. And what he got in selling it is the way he paid for college. Uh, and uh, I'm not really sure why he was paying for college at the time because he wasn't passing any class that he was in. I think he was passing tennis, but I'm not sure. Um, and so uh, it was just a real struggle. He had gotten into a fraternity because he wanted friends. But he'd tell you that there is no more lonely point in his life than when he was surrounded by all those people. College brought more drugs other than just pot, uh, different things, uh, acid and all kinds of different drugs. And he realized that something was going wrong, and so he decided, well, you know what, I'm going to go home uh, because I can get home and then I'll try to get better. The thing is, when you're attached to something, it doesn't matter where you go, the attachment goes along with you. It just finds you wherever you are. And so it wasn't long before he went back home to Houston and, and whatever it was that he was attached to, all those different things found him there uh, and just continued uh, again, surrounded by people, doing anything he wanted, but yet never being so lone, more lonely in his life. And it came to a point uh, one night um, in a really bad part of Houston where he was sitting in a car waiting to do a drug deal. And uh, he came to a realization that, that from this point forward, there's really two roads, two roads that he could go down. And you know, that's the story of a lot of our lives probably, at some point in our lives, a choice between two things, a choice between two roads of where we're going to go, of what we're going to do, of who we're going to trust, and, and we all come to that point in our life. And you know, the amazing thing about God's Word, if you really get into it, is that God's Word speaks into those kinds of stories. It really, truly does speak into those kinds of stories. When we open the pages of Scripture, you find stories that speak to our greatest needs and our greatest struggles in life. But the stories, but they're stories that give us hope, to give my friend hope. There's a story like that in Luke 15. It's a really familiar story. You've probably heard it taught on before. It's the story of the prodigal son. But in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus has this encounter. And it says this. It says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees, the people, uh, the religious people, the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. And then the rest of Luke 15 is spoken as an answer to the accusation of the Pharisees and the teachers in verse 2, that Jesus associates with sinful people, even, even at times eating with them. I mean, the people who needed him were coming to him, and Jesus was making a place for them at his table and encouraging them, them to stay and eat with him. And, and Luke uses this great Greek word called prosdecomai. And it actually means that he wasn't just inviting them in, he was eagerly awaiting them. He was expecting them. He was actually looking for them. In other words, Jesus is not just associating with sinners, he is looking for them. He's eagerly awaiting for their coming. He has his eye out for them he is seeking people to come to him and be with him. And the reason is, is because lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God because God loves people more than anything. But that's one thing I want you to know today is God loves people more than anything. 
And so the Pharisees, they didn't understand this. The scribes, they accuse him. And all the rest of this chapter is Jesus' explanation to them of what is really happening when he welcomes these people in to eat with him. He tells the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And he says in the story, I'm the shepherd that's searching for that lost sheep. I'm the woman who's searching for her lost coin. And then, beginning in verse 11, Jesus gives this third answer to the Pharisees' accusation. He says this. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. But he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him in the field to feed his pigs. The young man became hungry, so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself at home, even the hired hands have food enough to spare, and here... I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired hand. And so he returned home to his father. And while he was, don't you love this? And while he was still a long way off, because what was he doing? He was waiting. He was eagerly expecting. And while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him. He didn't wait for him to come to him, he went and met him. He embraced him and he kissed him and his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. He had this whole thing practiced out, right? He'd been practicing what he was going to say to his father. He had it all ready. And his father says this, just, it doesn't say this in the text, but he says, okay, be quiet a minute. He looks at his servants, he says, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. You know, the moral of this story is running away from God starts by feeling uh, really free. But it almost always ends in misery either in this life or the next. You see, when we break our attachment with God, we will always end up attached to something else. It never fails. You know this. That attachment, though, will always bring slavery. Where our attachment with God can bring freedom, our attachment to so many other things brings slavery. Whether it's drugs or alcohol, sex, a job, a spouse, a sport, a hobby, Uh, Money, television, a boat, a beach house, whatever it is, a computer. I mean, it may be money or prestige or position. It might be your anxiety or your fear or your anger or your depression. If we break loose from God, we're going to end up attached to something else. And in the end, that thing, just like the prodigal, is going to send us out with the pigs, either in this life or the one to come. And I want you to pay attention to this because this is the reason why. Because this story, this story of the prodigal son, we are all the prodigal in the story. We are the prodigal son. I mean, you don't get to look at the story and decide which character you are. We're all the prodigal. 
And so the question for us is how many, how many of you have ever, and I don't want you to raise hands and I don't want you to elbow anybody, but how many of you ever, have ever tried to run away from God? Because running away from God isn't like you pack your bags and go somewhere, although that may, may be part of your runaway from God story. I mean, running away from God is that you knew better. You didn't really know everything about the Bible, but you had this feeling that God was going to say, when you said, what's, this, what's your will in this situation, you already knew what God would say, and you really didn't want to do it. It's kind of like I'm going to kind of turn down the, my conscience and decide maybe there is no God, and, and if there is a God, then he's not really interested in my life. I mean, he's not personal. He's not really paying attention. So you kind of adjusted your theology to allow you to get involved in some things or to even change your lifestyle. And so in that way, we've kind of been running from God. Or you ran away from God into a relationship. You ran away into some financial thing. You ran away from God in anger. You ran away from God because of some disappointment. You ran away from God because you were afraid you were going to miss out on something. You ran away from God uh, because you were sure that you knew better. Or maybe, just maybe, you ran away from God because of some shame or guilt that you have been placing on yourself. And it may, in your life, just be one particular issue, right? I mean, it's not like you've abandoned all your beliefs in God, right? But in this particular issue, God, you know, I need you to keep your hands off, right? I mean, I'm running, I'm doing my own thing, and it, it's not that you don't pray because when you get in trouble, you still pray, but you don't pray prayers of surrender. You pray prayers like, God, okay, I'm, I'm back, you know, and I kind of need your attention, but I only need it in this one area, not, not anywhere else, just in this, not he, here, not over there, I just need it. You know, focus, right, God, focus. I, <clears throat> I want to talk about this, and I, I want you to fix this, and then I'm just going to go away again. I mean, I mean, you don't say it, but you kind of pray that, right? And so then coming to church is a little uncomfortable because the truth is you know in your heart that you've been running. You've kind of put God on the back burner, the, the rear view mirror. You're not, you're not really going to pay attention to him. You see, we all run from God for basically the same reasons. A couple of them are this. For some of us, we just don't want to be told what to do, and we're afraid to surrender to God. We're afraid we're going to miss out on some good things. We're going to miss out on, on some good people. And the other reason I think we run, and I'm stealing this line from Philip Yancey. I love this line. The other reason we run is that we confuse life with God. I mean, life doesn't go well, and that is the equivalent of God not doing so well for us. And so we confuse life with God, and when life doesn't go well, we just blame God. And, and we say things like, well, why would I want to do God's will? Why, why, would I, <coughs> why would I want to surrender to God? Why would I want God to be a part of my life? Why would I want to make Jesus the Lord and master of my life? I mean, look how life, look how God has treated me. I don't want any part of a God if that's the kind of God he is. And we confuse life with God, and so we run from God and we abandon God. And when we abandon God, we run into things that bring upon guilt and shame. And now, and maybe this is your story, you just don't feel like you can come back. Because if you knew or he knew what you had done, man, when there's no way God's going to let that go, right? Man, I can't even let it go. How is he? I mean, this story of the prodigal, this is your story. 
This is my story. It's our story because it, there's a point in all of our lives when we either overtly or covertly run from God. We resist His will in terms of our relationships, our finances, our purpose, our desires. There's all kinds of areas. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're resisting God entirely. Maybe you fall into the category of so many people, so many people like me who were raised in church or somewhat in church, and you know the stories, you know the do's and don'ts, you know the, you've heard the Ten Commandments, you've even prayed the prayers, and it's not that you disagree with all of that, you're just not buying into it right now. I mean, it's not that you think all of that's wrong, it's just that you're not really wanting to live your life that way. So you've turned your back on God. You haven't necessarily packed a suitcase, right? But you got God in the rearview mirror. Maybe yours is a little more covert than that. I mean, yours is kind of a mental thing. You're not even sure there is a personal God with a personal will, but, but you have a conscience. And there's this tension in you right now because you're violating, you're violating some standard. Maybe it's your own standard. I mean, you really don't even subscribe to biblical standards, so you're not sure whether there is a God who has a plan, but you have a basic sense of right and wrong, and it came from somewhere. Maybe it came from God, but you're not even consistent with your own set of beliefs and your own set of values. And so there's a tension because you're running from God. Maybe you've done this thing that so oftentimes we do where we decide in order to turn down the volume of our conscience, we decide to believe, not to believe certain things anymore. Because, you know, if we can adjust our belief system enough, then eventually our conscience will quiet down, Right? But back in the, in your, in the back of your mind, when all the music stops, it's late at night, and you're staring up at the ceiling, and it's just you and you, there's something that you know isn't right. There are things in your life that you know aren't right. And if there is a God, there, there are things aren't right between you and him. And somewhere out there, someday you know there's going to be a day of reckoning. And I don't mean after you die. I mean in this life, that as you look at your life and the direction of your life, you know this in your heart that you can't keep running because eventually you're going to hit a wall and eventually the chaos that you are creating is going to get to the point where you, you cannot continue to manage the chaos and the pain that you have caused, um, the pain that you've caused people around you, the pain you've caused your family, the pain you've caused your children, the pain you've caused your Parents, the pain you've created in yourself is going to get to a boiling point. And somewhere out there in the future, it's going to hit a point where you're face-to-face -face with the reality that your life is not working out exactly like you thought it was. And if that's you, then I want you to know this. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. You can run from God, but you can't outrun. Eventually, there's a day of reckoning. And that's what the son realized in the parable. That's what the boy from the story at the beginning of the message found out. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And so here's what the parable of the lost son tells us. Here's what I want you to know, that in spite of your past, in spite of all that you've done and all the places you've been, you can come home. No matter where you are, no matter what you're attached to, you can come home. You can walk away just like the lost son from your addiction, from your pain, from your anger, from your depression, from your seeking, from your past, from your shame, from your guilt. You can come home. 
How do I know that? I know it because I did. So I sat there in Houston, Texas, um, trying to do a drug deal. Um, my life was in turmoil. It was just nothing but chaos. And I don't tell you all this to say, hey, look at all he did, and he ended up okay, because you don't really know if I'm okay yet, right? I sat there in my car with my foot on the clutch in first gear, just trying to figure out what to do in my life, because I, or trying to think about how my life had gotten so out of control. Because when you get attached to things, your life spirals quickly. It goes places that you never really intended it to go, but somehow it just gets there. And so I found myself trying to do this drug deal with this guy who had just gotten out of prison and living in a place that had no power, no water, lit by candles, terrible part of Houston. Houston was divided into wards, and we were in, in the worst one. And I sat there that night, and I just thought, what am I doing with my life? And I realized in that moment that there were two roads, there were two choices I can make. Either I'm going to continue down this road or I can choose something different. And I just really feel like if I'd continued down this road I was on that, I mean, I don't know what it held. I just know it didn't hold anything good. And I knew that this road led to a life that was completely apart from God. And so because I knew the stories, because I had a brother who was a pastor, I decided to call him. And so I called him and I said, hey, I need some help. He didn't really know everything. He knew I was a little out of control, but he didn't know everything. And I said, I just need to get away. And he goes, well, listen, I'm going to camp, high school camp. Why don't you come out there with us? Which is what every parent wants, some drug-addicted uh, college kid going out and teaching their kids at church camp. <laughs> So I said, I'll go, I'll do recreation. And so I packed my bag and my pot and went to church camp. <laughs> and I got out there and God just began, you know, when I got into an atmosphere where I could begin to hear God, I got to this point later in the week and uh, had just realized that, that I, was, uh, I was really in trouble. And I walked into the cafeteria one night late and there was this guy in there, nobody special, didn't even know him. Um, just a, a guy who was a pastor at a small church. And uh, he said, hey, what's going on? He said, you look like you're struggling with something. And which was probably the one question he regrets asking to this day because I just threw up on him right there. So I just let it all out, just blah, and uh, just did it. And at the end of the time, at the end of me doing that, he looked at me and said, you know, you've just been running from God. And he said, you can come home. All you got to do is get down and seek forgiveness. And so that night I did. I got down and I sought forgiveness. I woke up the next day. I went home. I left everybody that I knew behind. I packed my bags and I went to uh, Bible college. <laughs> they didn't know what they were getting either. Uh, Bible college is a fun place. Uh, has a lot of rules. I hadn't followed rules in a long, long time. Uh, but the night I made that decision, it changed the course of my life. It changed who my friends would be. It changed who my wife would be, and I didn't even know her. It changed who my children would be, and I hadn't even thought about it. 
uh, that night changed the course of my life. And it came through forgiveness. I want you to look at a couple of scriptures with me. In John 1, there's this huge crowd that is coming out to see John the Baptist. They're really interested in what he is saying because he's, he's teaching things that they've never heard. He's doing things that they've never seen done. And so they come out and they basically say, hey, are you the guy we've been looking for? And John's like, well, you know, what do you, what do you mean? I, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, there's one coming after me. It's my job to point you to him, basically is the story. And then the next day, in the next verse, it says, this is what happens. In John 1.29, it says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look. He said, everybody, stop, look. There's something new coming. The Lamb of God, and the word of here literally means sent from God or provided by God. So the Lamb of God, this Lamb that is provided by God, who takes away, and again, literally, this means he lifts up and he carries them away, he carts them away. This lamb from God, provided by God, carts away the sin of the world, he said. Jewish sin, Roman sin, your sin, my sin. And they didn't understand it at that time. This is just the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. I mean, a person can do what? What do you mean? Nobody had any real idea of what he was talking about. I mean, even those closest to Jesus didn't understand it until it was really too late. I mean, he had this, this ministry for the next three years, and throughout his ministry, he'd leave these clues, but, but nobody really got it. And he told those closest to him that he was going to be arrested. And they were like, no way. There's no way that's going to happen. You're a rock star. I mean, you're bringing in bigger crowds than John the Baptist now. Nobody can get to you, Jesus. And then one night toward the end, he brings these 12 guys together to what would be their final Passover meal. And the Passover was that annual celebration when the Jewish people got together and, and they celebrated <clears throat> when the angel of death had passed over the Jewish people's homes in Egypt. They would slaughter a lamb and they would place lamb's blood on the doorframe of their door. And, and whoever had put that up, then the angel of death would pass over. And then when they woke up the next day, they were... They were released from their bondage in Egypt. And so, you with me? So they're celebrating this at the Passover. And Jesus is there with the 12 guys. He says, listen, I know that you have celebrated the Passover for almost 1,500 years, but this year we're going to do it differently. Now think about that. What it meant, the Passover meant for them for some 1,500 years at this point, celebrating what God had done in Egypt, at this point, Jesus looks at him and says, now it's going to mean something different. I don't want you to remember that back then. I, I want you to remember me. When you take this meal, I want you to remember me. He says in Luke 22, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The Lamb of God that takes away, that carts off the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. But you know, those guys still didn't get it and we probably wouldn't have either. In many ways, we still don't. And that's why we continue to talk about it and slave under it. 
Because hours later, this man was arrested, beaten, lied about. The very hands that had healed the sick and raised the dead were stretched out and nailed to an ugly Roman cross. And the gospel writers, some of whom were eyewitnesses to this, include an otherwise unimportant detail. Whereas most of these victims suffocate, most of the victims of crucifixion suffocate under the weight of their own bodies, Jesus bled to death. As the Lamb of God who came to carry away your sin and my sin. 20 years later, Paul would put the events of that day into practical terms for us to understand when he wrote this. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And just like the prodigal son, just like the guy in our video, just like me, pride or fear or shame or guilt keeps us from our father who wants to welcome us home. I want you to listen to this though. You don't have to forgive yourself because yourself has already been forgiven. You don't have to forgive yourself because yourself has already been forgiven. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Look, your sin, my sin, it created a debt. And the reason we struggle in this and wonder what we can do with this, how do I move beyond this, how do I get rid of this cloud, how do I get rid of this shadow, is because it's real. I mean, we really are in debt. And not only do we owe ourselves to have not made those decisions, but we owe God. I mean, that's the nature of your shame and guilt. And here's what he says to us. The good news, he says, is you through Christ have been forgiven. Specifically, your debt has been canceled. The charge of your legal indebtedness that stood against you and condemned you, check this out, he has taken it away. He picked it up and he carried it off. He lifted it up and he took it away and it was nailed to a cross. And so what do you think will wash away your sin and my sin? Nothing you will ever do, nothing but the blood of our Savior. Because when he died, he canceled your indebtedness, your indebtedness to God and your indebtedness to you. You don't have to forgive yourself because yourself has already been forgiven. And if you want to continue trying to figure out how to get rid of your sin, of your shame, of your guilt, that's your business. I cannot tell you what to do. And if you want to look for some religious system that will give you advice, there are plenty of them out there. But there is only one person in history who stepped up and said, it is not a system and it is not an answer. I am the solution to your problem. What you cannot do, God already did. I am the Lamb of God who came to pick up and carry away the sins of the world. I came to take your sins. And some of you, just like me, are holding yourself hostage to a debt that has already been paid. You're trying to pay for sin that has already been paid for, and your role is to receive what has been done for you. So I still struggle in this, okay? I don't know about you, I don't know about everybody, but I still struggle in this with shame and guilt because of choices I've made and things I've done. I still struggle in this and forgiven. I still struggle with forgiving, even though I know, I, I, I know. 
And so here's what I did. I'm married, I have three kids, and I have two grandkids. And every time I see my kids and my grandkids, they are not a reminder. They are not a reminder of the death of a child when I was in high school. They are a reminder of God's forgiveness. When I see them, they are not a reminder of my failure. They are a reminder of God's forgiveness. And that's what we have to do. We have to set up mental memorials to God's forgiveness, not your failure. You know, I love the last line in the story of the prodigal son. He says, so the party began. I like it in that version. So the party began. And here's the reality of it. Even though I don't feel like it sometimes, I'm going to be at that party. I'm going to be a part of that party. Because now all of those memories, since those choices I made, since the choice you made in high school or in college or at the end of that marriage or that relationship or that job or whatever it was, whatever you think of, whenever you think of that name, whenever you hear that story, whenever you drive down that street, whenever you hear failure, condemned, guilty, your heavenly Father is inviting you to build a kind of new mental memorial to your past. From now on, that shame that you have felt and the guilt that you have carried because of your choices, because of my choices, they are not a reminder of my failure. They are a reminder of God's forgiveness, of his grace, of God's forgiveness of his love. You see, for me, all of that sin and all of that old life reminds me that through Christ, he picked it up and he carried it away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing you'll ever do, only the blood of Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to close our service with a time of communion because this was a memorial that Jesus established to remind us of our forgiveness. It, it, it is the one thing we do in here every week that reminds us of our forgiveness and our need to just accept it and receive it and live in it. And so we're going to come and take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ, the same meal he instituted over 2,000 years ago. We weren't going to remember the Passover anymore. What we're going to do when we do this is we're going to remember me we're going to remember Jesus. We're going to dip it in some juice that represents the blood of Christ that he shed for you. And we're going to experience forgiveness because this meal is a reminder of God's grace, of God's forgiveness. And so we're going to pray, and then you'll be free to come and take communion. But before you do, I just want you to know this. This is a time when you can say, you know what? I have clung to worthless idols at the expense of the love of God. I have clung to worthless idols at the, at the expense of a clear conscience with my heavenly Father. I have run from God. I recognize today how foolish that was. And today, to the best of my ability, I'm deciding 
that I'm not going to run anymore. I'm not going to waste another season of my life pursuing something that will eventually just create more chaos in my life, knowing at some point down the road I'm going to have to surrender anyway. And so I want you to, what I want you to do, because this is your story, it's my story, it's all of our story, is that in our despair, we finally quit running. And when we realize what he has done, we drop our weapons of defense and we are humbled and we cry out to the Lord. And here's the best news that you're going to hear today. The Father is waiting for you to do it. And when you call on the Lord, he hears you and he answers and he responds because the point of all of this chaos that we experience or are beginning to experience is that he wants us to come back. So as I close with prayer, I want you to pray as well. And, 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 and maybe, you know what, maybe you haven't been running. And if you haven't been running, then I hope you'll take a minute and pray for all of us who have been running. But if you've been running, then with whatever words you want to use, I pray that you tell your heavenly father that I'm not going to run anymore. So I'm going to pray, and then when you're ready, you come and take communion.